We are in the middle of a series. I've loved this series. This is one of my favorite kinds of series, which is a teaching series. I hope you're enjoying it. We're trying to not let it be too, uh, I don't know, VBS for you or Sunday school for you. You know, I didn't bring a felt board just for that reason alone, all right? Um, we're going through a lot of Old Testament, and especially in terms of why we're doing this series, is to understand and better understand the beginnings, the origins, if you will, and the purpose of why it was given to us, why it was given to us in Scripture for us to be able to live our lives to, okay, and, and understand the deep richness of, of our origins. So that's really what Genesis, this is all about the book of Genesis, that's what it means, origins, beginning. We, we've titled it in the beginning because of the way it starts, right? In the beginning, God. Every Jewish child would have known those four words for as long as they could speak. In the beginning, God, because it was part of their oral heritage to be able to speak the creation story, to be able to share stories of what God had done uh, in their life. And so they would have had this language, this idea, because it's all written this way. Moses is writing this to God's people, you know, 2,700, we believe, 25 to 2,700 years later, he's writing this history for them. Right, so they can understand their, their origins, not just the origin of everything, because that's part of it, right? but their origins. And why is that important? Well, I, I love this quote from Winston Churchill. This is one of the reasons it's so critical. Even more today in our history, in our current culture, is we need to be able to learn from our history. Right? Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Everybody with me? Okay, and I, I don't care where you stand politically, but this is just a big deal for me, right? We don't need to cancel things or abolish things or try to forget things or try to deny that things happen. We have to be able to have a proper view and understanding of history and be able to approach it in a way where we can learn from it. That's the point, right? That's the point of having this. And so understanding the, the, the Old Testament, especially this, this Genesis, the origins of our faith, helps us understand the New Testament, helps us understand why Jesus was even necessary. We've been sharing you this quote over the last few weeks, Jesus is the New Testament, uh, the New Testament is the answer to the, uh, to the curse in the, gen in the Genesis of the Old Testament. It's the answer to the curse in the Genesis and the beginning and the origins of our faith. Right? There was a reason Jesus had to come. We covered that over the first few weeks and continue to point back to the New Testament and how Jesus kind of fulfilled all of these things. But we've walked you through, this is a quick timeline, um, we've walked you through you know, the beginning God, creation, uh, thousands of years, the flood, we looked at Noah's story a little bit. Last week we focused on uh, the, the, the chosen one who we call Abraham, right? Not Neo from Matrix, but Abraham is the, the real chosen one, right? And chosen to be the, the father of many nations, to be the people of God. And today, we're going to focus on Isaac, all right? I, I want you to see this because we're going to repeat this again today. Where we talked a lot about, when, once you start getting into people, once you start getting into people, the people stories, all right, you're going to see this pattern of living life God's way versus our way. Everybody with me? It's, it's just a pattern that you have to be able to see, and, and, and sometimes we can forget when they're the heroes of the faith, that they were men and they were women and they were kids, just like us, making decisions every day <laughs> whether they're going to live God's way or their way, right? That's, that's what it is. We see Isaac. Abraham was, was the, the chosen, but Isaac is the promise. He's the son of promise to Sarah at 90 years old, to Abraham at 100 years old, okay? Talk about grandpa dad, right? Like that's, that's who he was, right? Isaac is born. 
And we see that's kind of the first time he's mentioned. I mentioned it last week when Isaac was born. But I want to talk about the first significant time we see Isaac mentioned in terms of his story. But I want, to, I want to talk about it, and I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to give you the reference. I want to talk about it from, Abraham, from Isaac's perspective. We always read this from Abraham's perspective. I want to talk about it from Isaac's. Okay? Isaac is, best we can guess, a preteen, younger teenager at this point in his life. All right? His dad wakes up one morning, comes to Isaac and says, let's go. We're going to do a sacrifice. All right? takes the wood, takes the fire, gets the stuff they need, grabs some servants and some donkeys, whatever they grab. They start making a journey. It's multiple days, okay? This is not like up the hill from where they are. It's a multiple-day journey, right, where, you know, Isaac's helping and carrying the wood and doing the thing, and, and they're headed out to do this wherever God told Abraham to go, to have a sacrifice. Then at some point, Abraham tells all the servants to stay, Hey, me and, you know, this is where we're going. Isaac and I are going to take it from here. So he takes the fire and the knife, and Isaac grabs the wood, and they start walking the mountain. You see Isaac say to his dad, Papa, you know, or whatever. I don't know how he said it, but, you know, Dad, uh, we have the wood, and we have the fire. Good for us, right? Where's the animal? right? Where's the sheep? I mean, Isaac would have seen this already happen several times. Hey, where's the beef? You know, you, know, you guys with me when I'm saying that? Like, what's going on? And Isaac, I mean, and Jacob, Abraham actually says, hey, you know, God will provide um, for the offering. Okay. So all we get is this little tiny story where they get up to the top of this mountain. Uh, you know, Abraham builds the altar. Isaac sets the wood out on the altar. Then Abraham ties Isaac up to the altar, breaks out his, you know, K-bar, his knife, you guys with me, and raises it to kill his son. Now, we know the story, if you raise it again, if you, were, if you have any good VBS in your history, right? We know that right at the last, I don't know, like we think of it like a drama, like a movie, right at the very last second, right, before he plunges the knife into his son. He hears a rustling in the bushes. God speaks and says, Abraham, don't do it. Almost like he, you know, like, you told me to do it, right? No, Abraham, don't do it. Isaac's hearing this. Don't do it. You didn't withhold your son from me. Good for you. And he provided a ram. So he gets his son down. They get the ram. They put him on the altar. They make the sacrifice. And he goes on to simply say, they went home. That's it. That's all we get. Could you imagine that being one of your stories as a teenager, right? Listen, I, I'm just going to share a brief one for me. Like, one time my parents left me in the van, okay? We'd come home from a long trip. My, my, my dad used to sing music all around the southern part of Canada, so we'd travel a lot, and I, 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 would, I would crawl under the seats. Even when I was older, I would kind of get close to the warm part of the van, especially in the winter, and I would fall asleep, Okay, on these long, long trips, get home late at night. I wake up one night in the van. No one's around. I look to see we're at home. We're parked by the house, and I'm freaking out. I go into the house that's unlocked, because it's Canada. So I go into the house that's unlocked. I go upstairs crying and wailing at my parents, whose response to me is, go to bed. <laughs> right? Go to bed. Now, 
I don't even think I've forgiven him for that at this point. You guys with me? Every time I tell the story, it gets worse and more embellished, right? They left me there for hours. It could have been five minutes. Who knows? My parents barely remember this happening. But it's a big deal to me. Think about the impact, right? This is Isaac's story. We're not talking about Abraham's test. We're talking about Isaac's story, where every time Abraham prays and he sees Isaac, you know, Abraham coming around and Isaac goes, what's up, dad? What'd God say this time? You know, I'm sure there was some apprehension. Hey, Isaac, come over here and help us build the, build the, uh, you know, the altar. No. There must be witnesses. Y'all with me? And yet what we do see in Isaac's story is an incredible man of faith. And here's, and actually that's the reason I wanted to make sure we told that story because I can only fathom that that experience, not just a test for Abraham, but solidified some aspect of trust in God, what he saw exampled by his dad, what he himself was spared from and had to witness was such a huge deal for him as he grew up, as he became a man of God himself. And so we're going to look at his story. Just briefly, some elements. I'm going to dive deep into one particular story, but I want us to learn from his story and see not only the impact of this beautiful man of God and see and, ex- and appreciate all that he is and all that we see in terms of recorded about his story, but I also want you to see one of the reasons we do get the fullness of his story, especially his family story. Let's go. We'll start in Genesis 25, and I'll walk you through a little bit. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of uh, Bethulah and uh, an Aramean from uh, Paterama, and the sister of Laban, the Armenian. So uh, he, they actually, there's a cool story in there. If you want to go back and read it in 24, it's actually a really cool story of when um, they go find Rebekah, his wife, part of Abraham's family. They didn't want him to marry locally, so they wanted to be part of Abraham's family. So they go find her. That's a really cool story in terms of how God provided. But she really hadn't experienced any of what Isaac had experienced. She hadn't really experienced all that had happened in Abraham and Sarah's life. So Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children, and the Lord did answer Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in the womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she said. And the Lord told her, look, your sons in the womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Yes, this is actually revealed to Rebecca. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair, like a fur coat. And they named him Esau, which meant kind of wild and, you know, wild and woolly, right? The other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, which, believe it or not, means heel, okay? Like deceiver, actually, but it means heel. I can't imagine what it would be like if today we just named our children right then, depending on the birth experience, right? Like Payne Dawson, right? You know, Chaos Roland. I mean, I'm trying to say, like, you know, it's, it's, that'd be crazy. So this is, they're like, these names have meanings. Yeah, Esau was wild and woolly, and, and Jacob was a heel, right? Grabbed a hold of his heel. So Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. 
And the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, and he was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see just at the end of this, and you'll see more play out in their story, but there's a little favoritism that goes on. There's a little favoritism happening between uh, Isaac and his firstborn, and then mom and Jacob, who's a little bit more of a uh, mama's boy, if you will. And, and another part that I want you to see, and I'm going to only read one side of this, but several times we see in Isaac's story where God comes to Isaac and reminds him of the covenant that he made with Abram. Now, remember the, the covenant I talked about last week? You'll have to go back and see the significance of that. But these are the reminders of the covenant that he gives to, uh, his, to Abraham's children. So here's to Isaac. A severe famine struck the land, and it happened before Abraham's time. And so um, Isaac moved to Gerar, right, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. Gerar was a valley. So the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you to do. That's also, again, that was a mistake that Abram, uh, Abram made uh, with Sarah. He said, don't go down there, but live here. Live here as a foreigner in the land, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you, and I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give them the lands, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the same language that he used with Abraham. Same language he used to help them understand the covenant and the promise that God sealed with himself, with an oath on himself. goes on to say, I will do this because Abraham listened to me, and he obeyed my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. I do this because of the relationship I had with your dad, with Abraham, and I want you to, to listen to me and to do what I say. That's, that's the gist of this, of this interaction in this moment. I want you to see, um, as I walk into this, because I want to point this out, is before I give you the summary, like I did last week, you could take a picture of it and read it on your own. We can't read everything, it's just impossible. Uh, to, to, to go through the whole scripture and passages, every passage that talks about Isaac's story. But I'll give you a quick, brief history and a brief overview. But I do want you to see this. This isn't a big point that we're kind of pulling out today. If you didn't already see it in Abraham's story last week, I want you to see it in this. When we start looking at the Genesis and the origins of their ancestors, this is the Jewish people's ancestors, and because of us, remember we talked about that last week, we're a part of the family of God, it's our story too. I want you to notice there is a reason we get the dysfunctional family tree, okay? We get the picture of this dysfunctional family tree. If you didn't already see it with Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and, you know, Isaac and Sarah and all the stuff that went on, like if you didn't already see the dysfunction in the relationships, you're going to see it in Isaac and his relationships and Jacob and, his, you know, as, you, as we go down the line. There's a reason all this is there. Go back to this. This is one of the reasons I believe that, that, that God inspired the writing of Scripture through man, but it wasn't man's idea. It wasn't, it wasn't some guy's idea to create scriptural text for a religion to try to convince people to follow God. If that was the case, we would not see any of this dirty laundry. We would not see any of the failures, right? Because we would never tell on ourselves, let alone tell on other people that make us look bad, you know, bad versus as great as we can look. That's why I'm convinced of that. But there's a lot of dysfunction, okay? And I love this. I pulled this picture up because this is all I could think about when I was thinking about it, right? Remember Schoolhouse Rock? Dysfunction Junction, right? 
It's not exactly the way it was said, but that's what was in my head, right? What's your function? That's the, the reason I like that phrase is like, why? Why do we see all this dysfunction? Why, why do we see all of this in our historical text of these real men and women and children of God? What's the function? What's it for? All right? Before I give you that bottom line, I just want you to see, again, the big picture. God's redemptive plan is not derailed by man's dysfunction. Now, I'm going to use the word dysfunction because I want it to encompass several things. Okay, so just don't, don't judge me on that word. I just want to use it to kind of categorize the bigger picture. It includes sin. It includes sin choices, choosing our way versus God's way. It includes the consequences of sin, but it also includes the relationships that we're in and the relationships and the decisions that other people in relationships with us, how it affects us, how it, how it changes our story. That's why I want to use that word to kind of fully encompass mistakes, errors, foolish judgment, reckless decisions, sin, consequences of sin. That's what I mean by that. And none of that derails God's redemptive plan. We see that in history, but we don't just see that in history. We see it, I see it as an experience of my life as I see God working and moving and living in my life. Here's the quick overview, and if you want to take a picture of this, you can. This gives you just several scriptural passages as to what happened, and go back and read these on your own if you haven't already done so. But here's just a few things for you to notice. We do see that Isaac does obey God. He wants to obey God. He's going to stay in Greer, and he's, he's, going, to, he's going to follow the commands of God. God helps him find his wife, Rebecca, through a really miraculous uh, way, Right? We see that he honors his dad, Abraham. He and Ishmael actually get back together to bury Abraham. So there's a, that's a big deal for them, these two warring brothers, to come back together and to honor their father in a way that honors God, to bury their dad and to, and to kind of reunite in that moment. However, we also see that he chooses to stay in the Gerar Valley. That doesn't, mean any, that doesn't mean that things go smoothly. We see later on, especially when you're talking about the rewards of faith versus you know, the consequences of living life their own way, Esau, in a moment between Esau when they're younger, younger men, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, okay? Now, there's a manipulative thing that happens here, and I don't want to pass over it too quickly, but there's a story that goes along with it, and he's starving because he couldn't catch anything and kill anything, and he feels like he's going to die, and Jacob's cooking up some stew with mom, you know, and he begs his brother for food. And his brother, seeing him in this state, decides to manipulate the situation and says, oh, I'll give you a cup of soup, you know, stew. Sell me your birthright. Give it to me. It's mine. And in that moment, Esau makes this decision to forfeit his firstborn birthright to his younger brother, his twin brother, but younger brother, and, and, and makes this foolish decision. Now, again, I don't want to, we would look at it like a foolish thing, like, why would you even do that? How could they do that? That's weird. But honestly, this was a big deal. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about the immorality of man and the foolishness of man and the godlessness of man, and he compares that to Esau. He says, Esau, don't be godless like Esau who traded his birthright for a single meal. Like, <clears throat> it's a big deal. It was a significant moment in their story. Esau goes on to marry 
I don't have this up here, but I'll let you know. Esau goes on to marry a couple Hittite women, and all we get from Scripture is that they made Isaac and uh, Rebekah's life miserable. That's all we see. All we know is that whoever Esau chooses to marry makes life miserable for the family. Now, Isaac's not a perfect man. For some reason, he does the same thing his dad did before him. They go to the Greer Valley, they're with Abimelech, and, and he tells the king, oh, she's my sister. You guys remember that from last week? Yeah? This is thrice this has happened. Okay? Three times. And you got to wonder at this point, did Abraham even tell his son? Like, don't do that. I did it twice. That's how stupid I am. Don't do that. Or did, or did he just literally do the exact same mistake that his father made? I, I don't know. Or did he hear the story and for some weird reason all he remembered was, oh, that sounded like a good idea at the time. Let's do that. We see that uh, a little bit later on, again, we see that um, in verse 20, or chapter 27, we see the story we're going to read fully. You see Abraham or Isaac want to attempt, I say attempt for a reason, to bless his son Esau. He wants to honor his firstborn son. And I believe he really felt like it was honoring God to do what he believed was part of God's decrees through Abraham. But you also see Rebekah, you also see his wife conspire against him, against her husband. It's not the first time that she conspires and manipulates. You see Jacob, his second-born son, you see him lie and deceive his dad. And then you see Esau with murderous intent. You see Esau actually plan to outright kill his brother. I'm going to go into that story, but before I do, I just want to help you here real quick, okay? Because again, this is, we're talking about a, limit, a period of time, and again, if you grew up like me and you heard these stories a thousand times, sometimes you do not have the proper mental picture of what I'm talking about, and I wish I would have put a picture of it on screen. How many of you guys remember the 1993 movie, Grumpy Old Men? You guys remember that? Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau and Burgess Meredith, you guys, some of the kids don't even know who I'm talking about, right? Rocky's coach, all right, that's a better way to say it. Okay, there's this amazing movie. I want you to see this story, and I want you to picture, I want you to picture Jacob and Esau in their 60s and 70s, okay? They are not young men. They are not children. You guys with me? Okay, that's, that's, not the, that's not what we get from this timeline in terms of their story. And before I dive into it, I want you to get that. I want you to really read this and see the, the, what's happening here. We're going to jump into 27 if you want to follow along. We're going to read this together and really begin to pull and see some things and learn from our history. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he called to Esau, his older son, and said, My son, yes, father, Esau replied. I'm an old man now, Isaac said. I don't know when I'm going to die. Take your bow and your quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and, and bring it in here for me to eat then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. But Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, bring me some wild game, prepare me a delicious meal. I'm going to bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me and do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks, bring me two fine young goats. I'm going to use those to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then you're going to take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. 
But look, <laughs> look, mom, okay? Jacob replied to, to Rebekah, my brother Esau is a hairy man. That had to be a lot of hair for it to be recorded. Y'all with me? And my skin is smooth. What if my father touches me and sees that I'm trying to trick him? He's going to curse me instead of bless me. So Jacob's got some brains, okay? He knows what's going on. But his mother replied, then let the curse fall on me, my son. Let mom handle it. Y'all with me? Just do what I tell you. Go out and get the goats for me. So Jacob went out and got the young goats for his mother, and Rebekah took them and prepared a delicious meal just the way Isaac liked it. Then she took Esau's favorite clothes, which were there in the house, and gave them to her younger son, Jacob. She covered his arms with the smooth part of the neck from the skin of young goats. I don't know what that looked like and don't want to. Then she gave Jacob the delicious meal, including freshly baked bread. So Jacob took the food to his father, and his father, he said, yes, my son. Isaac answered, who are you, Esau or Jacob? Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Here's the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so you can give me your blessing. Isaac asked, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, put it in my path. Ooh, he brings God into it, right? Like he didn't just lie. He says, oh, God helped me. Your God helped put it in my path. And then lightning came down and struck him dead. That's what we want to see. He says, no, Isaac said to Jacob, come closer so I can touch you and make sure that you're really Esau. <laughs> so Jacob went closer to his father and Isaac touched him and the voice was Jacob's but the hands were Esau's, Isaac said. But he did not recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy just like Esau's, so Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. But are you really my son Esau? Can you hear the, 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 the struggle? Yes, oh, double down. Yes, I am, Jacob replied. Then Isaac said, now my son, bring me the wild game, let me eat it and Give me, I'll give you my blessing. So Jacob took the food to his father, and Isaac ate it, and he gave him drink wine that Jacob served him. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come a little closer and kiss me, my son. Remember the grumpy old men. Think about the age here. Come kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over to kiss him. And when Isaac caught the smell of the clothes, he was finally convinced. And he, then he blessed his son, son. He said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the outdoors, which the Lord has Blessed. He was convinced it was Esau. From the, this is the blessing. From the dew of heaven and the richness of earth, may God always give you abundant harvest of grain and bountiful new wine. May many nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. May you be the master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. All who curse you will be cursed and all who bless you will be blessed. This part of this is the promise that God gave him. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and almost before Jacob had left his father, Esau returned from his hunt. Esau prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father, and he said, sit up, my father, and eat the wild game so you can give me your blessing. But Isaac asked him, who are you? Esau replied, it's your son. It's your, it's your firstborn son. It's me, Esau. And Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. And said, then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it. I blessed him before you came. And yes, before you ask, that blessing must stand. 
When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here and he tricked me. And he has taken away your blessing. And Esau exclaimed, no wonder his name is Jacob. Heal, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn. That would have been a physical inheritance. You know, like double the portion kind of thing. And now he's stolen my blessing. Oh, haven't you saved even one blessing for me? Esau said to Isaac, I've made Jacob your master. And I've declared that all his brothers will be his servants. I've guaranteed him an abundance of grain and wine. What is there left for me to give you, my son? And Esau pleaded, but do you only have one blessing? Oh, my father, bless me too. And then Esau broke down and wept. If you don't hear the despair that's going on here, if you don't put yourself in this story, you're going to miss this. Finally, his father Isaac said to him, you will live away from the richness, the richness of earth and away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you decide to break free, you will shake his yoke from your neck. And there's some controversy, not controversy, but just, you know, commentators argue about what this means, what part of this blessing meant. When you decide to break free, you can shake that yoke from your neck. And I believe we'll talk more about that and give you some insight next week. But from that time on, Esau hated Jacob. Because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Like as soon as dad goes, he's dead. He's gone. And this is how he consoled himself, it goes on to say. So he was going to kill his brother. Now, very quickly, how we learn from Scripture really does matter. I'm not going to go deep into any type of hermeneutics or anything like that in terms of, in terms of language here, in terms of the Hebrew here. Okay, I just, I just want to give you a quick literary f- framework that does still apply to Scripture when you read it in terms of how we learn, okay? especially when you read these Old Testament stories. How do we learn from history? Well, there's a descriptive and a prescriptive method, okay? and both apply, especially to the 66 books of the Bible. And the best way I've heard this is one of my good friends, Dave McNeely, and, and I've heard, I heard him use this several times, and it just stuck with me as an easy way to remember. That descriptive texts tell us what happened. What did happen? Okay? What did happen? He stole his blessing. Esau's going to kill Jacob. That did happen. But prescriptive text, when you read this a little differently, it's what should happen. It's what should happen. And sometimes when Christians approach Genesis or their ancestry or their origins or the Old Testament as a whole, sometimes, listen, we get a little bit of, we get into trouble when we don't really read Scripture through the lens of descriptive versus prescriptive and we start worrying about, you know, commands in the Old Testament that we're like, well, wait, is that, is that a command for me? Is that a command for now? Was that a command for then? Right? Like, like, like do, how do we apply this practically? Okay. And, and sometimes it's hard. Like you go over here and look, look, at the, look at the characters, okay? Go quick to the characters. Isaac is the child of promise. And as far as we can tell outside of that little screw up with she's my sister, you know, we don't get a whole lot of Isaac's mistakes in this. We don't get a whole lot of his failures. He tried to live his life God's way. He was an incredible man of God. His wife, on the other hand, helicopter mom, right? 
Kids in their 60s, mom's still in their business. Everybody with me? Okay, mom's still in their business. Manipulating wife, because I said I told you, there's other stories you can read where she kind of manipulates Isaac. Esau's wild. He's reckless, which goes back to that time he sold his birthright, like reckless, foolish, and murderous. He's going to spend a majority of his older life ready to kill his brother, hunting his brother. Jacob, however, lies, cheats, and steals and receives God's blessing. Right? So if we read this wrong, like we, this is common sense, guys. I know you know this. You guys are all, you're here, you're all smarter than the average bear. I get it, okay? But I can't trust that people have common sense anymore, okay? I just can't. We don't read the story and go, gee, the way to get God's blessing is to lie, cheat, and steal. I'm going to be like Jacob, right? You guys with me? All the kids need to nod your head because you need to learn this early on, right? That's not how we read this story, you know? Rebecca seems to get away scot-free. I'll just manipulate my husband like Rebecca did. This seemed to work out. Worked out for the kid I love more, right? You know, I want to be, do I really want to be Isaac? Do I want to be deceived and tricked and, and let that be part of my legacy? You guys with me? We do need to learn. We need to see these stories for what they are. We need to see these legacies and all the dysfunction that's in it. And we need to be able to learn from them. But it's not fully prescriptive because that's not how we're going to apply looking at these characters and individuals. If we're not careful, descriptive can also trip us up. Because sometimes when we read the Old Testament stories and it's just describing what did happen, guys, if you're anything like me, it can get to be a little, I don't know, Games of Throny. You guys with me? Like it can be a little bit, it can feel like fiction. It can feel like a really good book, you know, that you, that you picked up and you put down. Oh, what a great story. What a great, wow, that really had me there. Till the, you guys with me? That had me till the end. If we're not careful, we will look at these descriptive things in the wrong way as well. Again, we just need to remember these are real men and women of God. These are real people desiring to really give themselves to God. These are real men and women and children making decisions about how to live God's way versus how to live their way. And what does it mean in the dysfunction when I have a family that all impacts one another? This is what we're reading, and we need to be able to learn from it. Why? Because God's, God's redemptive plan is not they be derailed by man's dysfunction, but doesn't mean we don't have to walk through the dysfunction. Quick story before I close, but I'm the youngest of five children. I'm the youngest of five kids. And my mom and dad, you know, they're in their 80s now. They raised all of us. Now, my brothers and sisters will tell you, you know, I was the baby, so I got whatever I wanted, you know, or whatever, you know. It's like I was the baby. I was treated differently than the firstborn. Right? Everybody says that in terms of their family. But ultimately, my parents became Christians, and they, they raised their children in the, in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. They raised their children to see God and to trust God and to, and to took them to church and made sure they had everything they needed to support them to make decisions about a life of faith. But one of their children, who was my older brother, rebelled. And I don't mean rebelled like struggled. I mean like ran away from home more times than you could possibly count. Was in more trouble than you could possibly imagine. 
caused more problems for other people and for my family than you could imagine. Ended up having to go live in foster homes and group homes, even though there was nothing wrong with our home. My brother made it very clear. He refused to be a part of our family. Juvenile hall, juvenile detention centers. And eventually, broke enough laws, did enough wrong things that he ended up in prison. He ended up in jail. There was about a six-year span in which I never even saw him. There's about an even longer span than that in which the, the relationships were estranged because of how my brother acted and responded. Now, this is, this is my brother, the fourth in the line of five, and my parents are the same parents to these five children. And yet, here's my brother making these decisions, making these choices, the sorrow, the heartbreak, the tears. My mom cried over the decisions that Andrew was making. And then... He cut off communication with my family. He cut it off. And then he decided, he, he, you know, this is, we believe it's a work of God, but he got a little older, 21-ish, 22, and started making some decisions and started kind of cleaning his life up and started to make better choices. He was out of prison, and, and uh, he finally reinst, you know, re, you know, reinstated a relationship. He, he finally wrote my mom and dad a letter, and my dad called him, and they had a conversation on the phone, and he wanted the opportunity to kind of get back together with the family. He wanted the opportunity to be kind of reintroduced to the family and brought back in. And my mom and dad said, well, your son Matthew, your brother Matthew is getting married. And I'm sure his reaction was like, he's only 18. No, that's not really what his reaction was. But anyway, he, I'm sure he was like, okay, and there were some things he had to do because he wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't legal for him to cross the border, but we were going to get him across anyway, um, <laughs> and try to get him down to North Carolina for this wedding. My dad had bought him a bus ticket and everything, and I get the news that Andrew's coming. My, my older brother's coming to our wedding and was just, I mean, you have to understand how this is, this is you know, if there's a black sheep of the family, he's charcoal black, right? I got a call from my folks about a week before, exactly, it was exactly one week, Saturday to Saturday, exactly one week before my wedding, that my brother is killed in a car accident. My dad has to fly up and, you know, my parents even decided, they, they were not even sure they were going to tell me before the wedding because they didn't want that to be the, a shadow cast over our day, over Tracy and I's day, but they told us and we wept and then even as at, at the wedding or after the wedding at Tracy's house, my family just kind of kept, came together to grieve a little because this is part of our story. We grieved a little, and the sermon at his, uh, at his funeral was what happens when the prodigal son doesn't make it all the way home. And that's a really sad thing to have to reconcile, right? But the reason I'm saying this is I, I want you to hear this really clearly today. And what I, when I read Isaac's story, I, I just want you to, to take away some hope because I don't, I don't view this as fiction. I view this as even viewing my story and my life about the things I want to learn from my brother. We named Thomas, Thomas's middle name is Andrew. We named him after my brother. And to be honest, like, there are things I don't know enough about him, so I, I take advantage of every story that my family shares so I can hear more and learn more. I look at my parents, again, 80 plus years old. Today they celebrate 62 years married. Today they celebrate. 62 years. Yeah, awesome. 
And as long as I've known them, obviously, and as long as I can remember, they've been, they've been serving and loving God, honoring Him, choosing God's way over their way, and now trying to point children and grandchildren back to the absolute hope that's Jesus. They've never stopped. But Andrew's story doesn't derail God's plan and story for my mom and dad. And I need every parent in the room to hear me that when your children are causing you grief and sorrow with the choices and decisions that they're making in their life, it does not leave a legacy in your life, in your story, that derails God's plan and his redemptive plan for you. I tell people all the time, you are not li- my parents are not living some sort of plan A or plan B version of faith because of Andrew and his decisions. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That's right. He's, they're not. And yet, did we still have to experience all that pain and dysfunction? Yes. Do we still have to go through the, the, the life now without Andrew in it? Yes. Do we believe we'll see him one day in heaven based on, uh, you know, a, a testimony of his childhood? Yes, we do. At least we, put, we, we really pray and hope so based on his confession of faith as a child. So all I'm saying is I want you to hear is that, listen, this is, this is our stories, okay? Now, I, this may not be my story right now. Everybody with me with Parker and Thomas and Charlie? It may not be my story currently, but it might be yours. It might be yours. You read a story like Isaac and Rebecca and you know, you've had that spouse that manipulated you. And maybe that relationship's over. And you think you have a plan B version of life ahead of you. And that's not true. Maybe you have those kids making choices in areas of their life to live their way versus God's way. They're still proclaiming the faith of their family but they're not following Jesus and they're not following God's word. They're going to make lifestyles, decisions, and choices that will grieve you. Listen, that's, that's not, that is not the end of God's redemptive work in your life or in their life, as we learn from Jacob. It's not the end of their story. These are real people, these are real moms and dads, real kids that we have to be able to read in a descriptive way so that we can learn from history so that we do not repeat it. So that we understand the importance of God's way in our life and God's plan in our life. And we need to see that, not just from your own personal stories. Again, I can see it personally in my life and in our story. But I can also see it when I read Scripture, when I read the origins of my faith. I believe that's the reason we are given the details we're given. I believe that's the reason we have every detail about the thing we just read in 27 when he he stole the blessing of God from his brother. Now, next week, we're going to dive into Jacob's story. Don't think Jacob got off scot-free. Just go ahead and let you know the end, you know, to be continued. Don't don't think that's what happens. You got to hear Jacob's story, too. He gets some of his own comeuppance in some of that, all right? But this is part of the, the, the reason we do this. And this is part of the reason we continue to learn from Scripture. I don't want you to ever think that because of you or because of the dysfunction you're having to, to work through in your life, in your family's life, and the people around you, that God's redemptive plan isn't working anymore. We know for a fact 
I know from experience that it is. I know for a fact, according to God's word, that it is. And I want you to bring, I want you to see hope in that. I want you to feel hope in your own faith in that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. You are amazing, God. Thank you for letting us learn from your word. And God, overall today, give us hope. Even as we read these struggling stories of families, of of the heroes of our faith, of the forefathers of our faith, that weren't perfect, God. May it never fall in the category of fiction where we don't, it was either good or bad or whatever, it held held our interest. Don't ever let it fall into fiction for us. And don't let us be deceived by the rules and regulations of, of religion when people have read things poorly and they're looking at things as prescriptive instead. And so, God, we, we want to we honor you and choose your way, like you have called us to do since Abraham, to trust you, to believe in you, and to count it righteousness for us when we do so. We praise this in your name, God, and we pray all this in your name, God. Amen.